Welcome to the Unsuccess Podcast, a podcast where we talk about uh, ministry and vocation and rethinking this idea of success. Uh, we are two pastors here in Portland, Oregon. I'm David Libby. And I'm Josh Hawk. But today we have a special guest not from here in Portland. And Josh, do you want to introduce him? Yeah. Um, so Tim is my uncle um, from New York, actually the complete opposite end of the country where we are. Thanks, Tim, for being on um, on the show and joining us and hanging out and killing some time um, together. Yeah, it's my privilege. I You've always been um, one I enjoy being with and respect, and it's it's fun. We'll have some fun today. Yeah, yeah, we will. So, tell us a little bit um, about your story. Um, I I've often referred to you as the crazy uncle, um, <laughs> and I was I was in conversation with um, one of my daughters. I said, "Hey, Uncle Tim is coming to town," and and she's like, "Which one is that?" And I said, "Oh, the crazy one." And she's like, "Wait, no." And and she corrected me, and um, she told me that my four-year-old said, no, he's the one with white hair. Um, and so Very as yeah, you know, my, my memories, you know, I have childhood memories, of course, when you didn't have white hair. Um, but as time progresses, of course, you, I mean, we all grow up and we all get older. Um, and so you have a lot more life kind of behind you. And yep. the one thing I'm learning slowly, albeit, but I am trying to learn it, um, is that often those people with white hair have a lot of more wisdom um, than I do. And um, How do you like coming here and immediately having Josh just uh, talk about how you're getting older? And- <laughs> but more wise, too. Like yeah, yeah. He, he's trying to redeem himself. Yeah. More yeah. wise. Um, just keep digging that hole, man. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about your story where who is tim huh that's a good question (laughs) when i find him i'll let you know (laughs) well i grew up in indianapolis indiana um the bible belt classic conservative upbringing um, part of the wesleyan church and the ones we attended definitely very fundamental evangelical churches and although i was taught all those things and embraced them as a child um, due to my rebelliousness, I guess. There was always this little tick in the back of my mind that challenged all those things. always wanted to know the whys, the wherefores. You know, don't just tell me that it is because it is, or the Bible tells me so. Well, why does the Bible say that? Um, but I grew up in that environment, um, felt a call to ministry at 12 years old, as soon as I graduated from high school, which I did at seven semesters so I could work to make money, took off to Bible College, United Wesleyan College in Allentown, Pennsylvania, did a four-year Bible degree, <clears throat> and then came out actually out here to Oregon to Salem for two years for as a youth pastor. Hmm. Then moved back to the East Coast and spent the rest of my ministry time in New York. I pastored in Southern Tier, Windsor, New York, Watertown, New York, and then Malone, New York, for eight years. Um, during that time also, from 94 to 99, I enrolled in Indiana Wesleyan University's Master of Arts program. And that we did that by distance learning. We'd go to the do the pre-class work a month before, then go to this campus for a week of classes. And then you had a month to do your post-class work. 
and really enjoyed that. That was a time when I met some mentors who helped me to begin to think outside of the box, ironically. Um, probably my biggest influence was David Smith, who he basically taught a whole different view of Revelation than I'd ever been taught, and that forced that opened the door for me to start just questioning things. Yeah. Um, I would say, though, a turning point that really took me in a different direction was the whole passage where Jesus talks about the least of these started to get into my bones, and I really started to look for how to live my life for people, mm. a true love of people that came out of my love for God. And we happened to be in a town where there were three state prisons and a county jail. It's um, 4,500 inmates in one county. As far as I know, it's still the highest concentration of Whoa. inmates in the country. So I started volunteering at the prisons, and it got me. It grabbed me, and I, so I transitioned and became a prison chaplain, and I did that for 16 years. Wow. So that's where I am today, and um, I started that in 2001, and um, from just before that time, I stopped reading any part of the Bible except the Gospels. For 10 <laughs> years, that's all I would read. Wow. Um, I've just recently started reading Paul again. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, so one of the things, and Tim, you and I have been talking about this this week already a little bit. Um, one of the things that I have really been wrestling with and, and drawn to, and um, again, this comes back to really the, the formation of this podcast, um, is this idea of two halves of life. Yes. Um, and it seems like in the first half of life, we're striving, achieving, and and going towards success. But then there's this second half of life that um, it seems like fewer people are in than in the first half of life. And so it's not about age. It's not like once you get to a certain point, you cross over to the second half of life. I think there are people who are quite elderly, you know, or middle-aged, or who are still living in first half of life stuff. Um, but I've, I've really been kind of wrestling with that, and what does that look like kind of for me and, and David, for you too, who, you know, age-wise, we should be in the first half of life, and um, are we, maybe are we cutting that short? How is that, um, what is the, uh, the necessity of, of living in those values. Um, but Carl Jung said, I want to share this quote. He says, one cannot live the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning for what was great in the morning will be of little importance in the evening. And what in the morning was true will at evening have become a lie. Mm. Yeah. I found that to be very interesting there's some things that I like to do all day. I will drink coffee all day. Yeah. Um, I was going to push back on that quote and say breakfast for dinner is is, is bomb and and you can't argue differently. Yeah, and then pe- <laughs> pizza for for breakfast is can be yeah. pretty good too. Yeah. yeah. Um but then I, I think of I think just how my um 
how I operate, I definitely am slow in the morning. I, I do not like mornings. Um, and so it takes me a while, but then I'm firing on all cylinders by like 11.30 p.m. usually. Um, and so there are definitely things just in my everyday um, as things progress, as new information kind of becomes available, um, as I experience the day, things that are rendered completely useless, um, you know, by kind of by nightfall. Um, and one, so this is the, here's where I've really been kind of struggling and wrestling, um, is, is the first half of life and second half of life. If we, if we use the morning evening metaphor, one is not more important than the other. Um, no. What? And I think sometimes the one gets you to the other. Yeah. For instance, 16 years of pastoral ministry. Honestly, my, you know, I grew up in the, grew up in and was educated in the, the church growth movement of the 80s and 90s. Sure. It was all about adding numbers to your church. Yeah. Every church I pastored grew numerically. Hmm. Every church I pastored is now either almost closed or by the by the church's standards dying because we experienced growth and in all honesty guys 16 years of ministry i look back and i say by the church's standards yeah by even success standards i failed yeah i failed um and because i personally was going through that whole 16 years i was going through deciding what i believed yeah and as I wrestled through that, I look at some of my early sermons, and I, I, I'm like, <laughs> yep. really? I said that? <laughs> yep. And once in a while, my wife will say to me, you know, you used to believe that. And I say, I know. Don't remind me. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. and so while you're, while you're going through 16 years of pastoring, and you're wrestling with what you believe and who you are, how can you be successful yeah. by those standards? Right. You know, it, but I will tell you this, everything I went through brought me to a point that when I finally did go into that prison, I could never have done that as a 22-year-old college graduate. Ah. But having those years behind me and having grown in my thinking, I was able to walk into an environment of immense diversity both staff and inmates and was able to find common ground with everyone in there wow david we we had jay on um either last week or the week before um jay talked about ministry in portland for the last the last 10 years yeah um and the word that god had given him was that this new endeavor is going to be, it's going to be something new and it's going to be something hard. And he said something that, oh, that I I haven't been able to, to get out of my mind. He said he could not do what he's doing now in his twenties and thirties. He could not Mm. have done that. Um, because he, because he, he needed um, he needed some of that first half of life stuff, some of that yeah. kind of maybe achieving or um, more kind of, affirmation. Yeah, kind of get, getting yeah. pats on the back. Um, it's interesting too because when I was transitioning from pastoral ministry to um, 
prison ministry, the population of prisons is like 85 to 90% black. Oh, yeah. Now, that's yeah. a whole other conversation that we won't get into today. Well, why that? I so, have my theories. But anyway. Good conversation. We should, I had, next time you're here. Yeah. I had this guy tell me, well, I really don't want to send a, a white privileged male into this <laughs> situation, but I think you'll do okay. <laughs> and, you know, again, that was one of those things. Had I not gone through everything I'd gone through up to that point, I would not have been able to walk in there and relate to those men. But I have guys that I, I miss <laughs> who are behind those walls. Um, and I often think I see faces and I see guys in my mind that I had deep connections with. And, you know, they didn't see my whiteness and I didn't see their blackness. Wow. Because we saw each other as humans putting, give, giving ourselves to each other. Yeah. So what kind of change then had to happen in your life or uh, what kinds of changes needed to happen to get you to a place where you were equipped to be able to do that? Well, one, I had to lose my racism. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, two, I had to lose my, and some, some people will push back against this and resist, but I had to lose my thinking of exclu- exclusivity, um, thinking that, you know, I had the only right way to sure. spirituality. Um, I have really good Muslim friends now. I have a Jewish rabbi who I love. I have Catholic friends that I share deeply with. I mean, when I went to Bible college, it was like Catholics were a cult. Yeah. And Baptist, um, the Baptists were just mm-hmm. above them. Yeah. They were on the edge of the Christian umbrella. We're, we're still trying to decide if they're in or out. Oh, right. <laughs> But the Catholics are definitely all going to hell. Right. And then, so, never mind the Muslims. Right. (laughs) Um, Right. But I remember the day I came home from work and looked at my wife and said, if Imam Dr. Ali isn't in the heaven we're all supposed to be heading toward, I don't want to go. Wow. Because my love for him had deepened so much, Mm -hmm. you know. That's a big so, shift. Yeah. Huge shift. Yeah. Yeah. I I find a chaplaincy, and the only experience I have is hospital chaplaincy, but I, I find it so interesting because um, as compared to being the pastor of a Christian church, you've got people from all walks of life, from all beliefs, from all thoughts, and as a as a care person, as a, as a chaplain for them, it, it takes a completely different way of thinking. Yes, it does. <laughs> and, you know, going back to the, the reason for this podcast, unsuccess, I never really figured out how to define success as a chaplain. <laughs> um, I'll give you an example. When you're pastoring a church, of course, if a parishioner comes to you with a deep concern, you really have to think through that, listen to it, decide if it's something we've got to adjust to or not, right? Because after all, 
they're putting the money in the collection plate right. and yep. they also <laughs> they also going to vote at the next time whether or not you're going to stay right yep. david and i have had conversations at great depth about th- that very thing yeah. you know and that tension that we so you know, find ourselves i'd in. been in the first prison i was in i was uh, there maybe six months so i'm still kind of in the you know church mindset and this inmate wrote to the assistant superintendent, which would be like the assistant warden, and said that he was disappointed with the new chaplain because he didn't use the King James Bible. (laughs) And the assistant superintendent happened to be doing his rounds and came into my office and he sat down and he said, so I got a letter about you. And I said, okay. And he says, yeah, this guy doesn't like that you use the King James Version or don't use the King James Version Bible and that you're, you know, he thinks you're a little bit in the left and blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, so what are we going to do about that? And he goes, oh, I already took care of it. I wrote him back and said, we pay this chaplain and hire him to be your spiritual leader. And if you don't like it, just don't go (laughs) to his services. And if you don't like it, just um, put in for a transfer. Well done. And I was like... (laughs) <laughs> really? This is what we've got now instead of, you know. David and I have tried that, that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, don't, I don't have too many uh, Bible translation fights with people, but those are the most frustrating fights to have. Absolutely. You're like, who cares? <laughs> but, but, um, but, but they care. They super sure. care. <laughs> I used to tell does. my people when I pastored, I used to say, I wish one time you guys would challenge me on a doctrine, doctrinal or a theological issue instead of arguing with me about the color carpet we were going to yeah. put in. Yeah. You know, it's like, really? <laughs> yeah. Or where the pulpit is on the platform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Um. We do it it becomes difficult. We have a we have a similar conversations, but when somebody comes at us as a pastor with that problem, like my mind, and this is where I like I hate myself for it, um, but somewhere at least in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, but I have to please you um because because you're you're helping pay the church bills, you know, or because you have leadership, because you have, you know, sway in, in the whole right. kind of political system of, um, of the church. And then that, that does kind of become metrics for success. And then we're not actually able or allowed to, um, be really faithful and obedient. That's kind of some of the language that we've begun to, yes. to use, um, is that faithfulness and that obedience, um, you talk about Tim. You talked about your um, kind of your sixteen years, kind of in the in the pastorate being unsuccessful. Um, we had my dad on a, a little while ago, and we talked about that last year um, when I was installed as lead pastor, and he he stepped down and has since become my assistant. Um, I told everybody in the congregation, I said, my dad has not been successful. Not only the congregation, this was like a community event. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. I was there. There were people from all over the place there. Our district superintendent was there as well. And, and Scored so I a lot said, of points. Yeah. yeah I said, for, <laughs> for the last 35 years, <laughs> I said, like, <laughs> this long period for like over a half of your life, you have been unsuccessful and the church has been unsuccessful as well. Um, and 
and it really, I think, sparked greater conversation and more conversation because the metrics changed or the language shifted at that point from success to faithfulness and obedience. Right. And, and that's the one thing that my dad, of course, is succeeds at, you know, and um, yeah, he's amazing at that. And uh it's hard to say he's successful at being faithful and obedient rather than being successful. But um <laughs> Yeah. There's some irony there. But yeah, that faithfulness and that obedience kind of over over a long period of time. Um, so I think the question you have to wrestle with at that point then is like for me, so once I realized 16 years of my life, I had not been successful. Then the question became, so how do I maintain my sanity? Yeah. And not (laughs) just feel like I just washed out 16 years. Right. So I go back to each ministry and I find, I remember the one person who is now walking with Christ, who had no idea who he was. Ah. Or the family who had fallen away and realized they needed to instill in their children values and and began coming to the church I was pastoring. And I hang on to, at each of those ministries, those people. Hmm. Um and that's, you know, again, not really success by any definition, but obedient and faithful yeah. to sharing the teachings of Jesus so that they could incorporate them in their lives. Sure. That's Because living that's... by the teachings of Jesus isn't even a definition in the world standard success. Right. right. Did the did doing that um, give you a piece? Yes. Okay. Uh, I I only ask. Uh, I've we've recently started having some interesting conversations as a church. Um, kind of one of those difficult conversations that um, knowing that the church essentially pays my salary, I I'm. I've been made aware of the, you know, the, the fact that that could end with, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if the church didn't like where this conversation was going, it could end with me being let go. Um, and I was, I was asked or advised to write down, you know, all of the great things that God has done in the past few years that I've been there. And I did that and it was, it was good, but um, for all the times that I've said, if even one person finds finds God through this, then it's been worth it. I still didn't feel entirely at peace. <laughs> yeah. When I had done that, I I felt like, no, this isn't enough. Like God, there, there's there's yeah. more to be done. I I didn't have that peace that it sounds like you had. Because we're trying to find success. We're trying to yeah. we're trying to we're trying to validate ourselves. I yeah. did that. I can remember doing that. I can remember spending hundreds of hours on an event and thousands of dollars on a single event and saying, but if one person and then when they don't, you're like, 
Wow. <laughs> or even when it is only one person, you're right. like, okay, but God, <laughs> thousands right. of dollars worth by thousands of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So yeah. Richard Rohr, in his book, Falling Upward, um, talks about first half of life, second half of life things. And he says, you know, some of the first half of life values, um, the big three that he identifies is our identity, our security, and then our sexuality and gender. Um, and so we're dealing with issues in this first half of life thing of, of like, what is life's purpose? Um, what makes me significant? How can I support myself? And then who's going to go with me? Um, how am I going to establish myself? What am I going to do that's going to validate um, kind of my my own self? Um, and he talks about narcissism. And really the first half of life, there's, there's a lot of that. Um, we are very selfish. Um, but th- this is this is what kind of is really eating me up right now um is he says that that is actually necessary and this is where i'm really struggling you know tim are you telling me as a younger guy that i have to go through 16 years of unsuccessful ministry before i arrive before i get to this place where i can then do real ministry you know like is my whole life leading up to this next point um, of doing of doing that, and can I just skip those sixteen years and jump straight to the good stuff? And I've used before, like Henry Nowen is somebody, um, Eugene Peterson is another person who I I've seen later in their life, like they've arrived at this place of peace, of contentment, um, and like I want that now and is that possible or do i have to do i have to really live in that first half of life in that achievement mentality of of that really validating myself of doing things that i know in the back of my mind are going to i'm going to arrive at a point that says this all seems pointless and meaningless um but do i have to go through that do i have to kind of build myself up in order to be broken so that I can effectively surrender myself completely to God and move on to the real stuff of life. Well, I think that you and Dave, your wrestling with unsuccess at this early age put you ahead of the curve. Because I think, I didn't realize as I was going through those 16 years, I didn't realize they were so futile. Yeah. I thought I was doing great things. Every Sunday that we had more that Sunday than the Sunday before, I was excited. So as I was going through it, I didn't realize that I was heading toward a crisis that was going to make me all of a sudden look back on those yeah. years and say, <clears throat> and maybe I was fooling myself. But I think if you can redefine success and see success as um, not so much an end goal, but the journey along the way. I've often said, you know, to people, life's not a destination, it's the journey. Enjoy the journey as you go. And I know we've all heard that, and it's becoming a trite phrase, but it is true. Right. <clears throat> Everything I do now, I evaluate it from the perspective of, is that a journey I want to go on? Um, you know, we got we were at 
I'm trying to think of how old she was. My wife decided she wanted to go back and get an associate's degree. And she said, I don't know if this is foolish or not because I'm, it's probably not going to help me get a job. I'll be old enough that nobody will want to hire me anyway. Mm. And, and I said, don't look at it like that. Look at it as part of the journey. Mm-hmm. Go to yep. school for your own benefit to help find who you are. And, um, you know, I've kind of been preaching that to myself because I keep thinking, do I want to go back to school now? I'm at a point where I could go back to school to get a doctorate. And I start running the same arguments. Well, nobody's going to hire me to teach after I get it anyway. It's not going to increase my salary. It's not. So the question is, is that a journey I want to take? Right. And um, ultimately, I've concluded, no, that's probably not, not a journey I want to take at this time. Um, and I don't, I don't know if I really answered your question, Josh, except to say that I think you wrestle with this. Do I have to go through it? And I'm not sure you, you're ahead of the curve. You may not have to go through as long a time. Yeah, sure. You might get to second half of life sooner, and hopefully, it's not only half then. Right. Third. My first third of life. Second third third of life. First third of life and then second end of life. Yeah. Um, And I'm hoping, I'm kind of feeling like I'm in that third of life. Yeah. You know, I, December, I started drawing my retirement from the prison system. And now I'm working for myself, trying to find the next piece. And I'm really hoping that this isn't an end of life. I'm hoping I've got a whole <laughs> lot more yet ahead. Yeah. And um, I'm, you know, I'll find some rhythm and something new to put myself into that's going to bring fulfillment <clears throat> in both ministry and personally. So this, I'll be kind of completely vulnerable here. Um, this last weekend, I was in a oh, fairly kind of very emotional funk. Mm-hmm. <coughs> um, and I was I was down, um, you know, seemingly somewhat somewhat depressed, um, you know, just e- emotionally and, and really struggling with some stuff, and not not knowing why. Um, like that's what's frustrating when I can see the symptoms, but I have no idea what's causing it. And and my wife, in her infinite brilliance, um, she started talking with me, and I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to talk to her, um, but she kind of just kept pressing the issue. Um, and we came back to this first half of life, second half of life thing. And she made the observation. She says, Josh, are you holding on to second half of life ideals, but you are actually living in first half of life things? And so for, for me, I right now, I want affirmation. I, mm-hmm. I want a pat on the back. But but there, there's a, a tension, a conflict within me because I know like I know that's not what God has for me, and I want to be secure in my own self to to be able to live into that faithfulness and that obedience to say, no matter what anybody says, I'm still going to be obedient and faithful. But what results is me being having an Eeyore day where I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm just in this funk, and my whole family then is affected by that. Like my kids are acting out as a result, um, and so. Like, do I have to, 
do I have to get enough of that affirmation um, then to get to that point, that, that contentment? So Rohr, Richard Rohr, argues that if in your first half of life, if you were properly attended to when you were young, then you are able to give of yourself more in the second half of life. Um, and so he says, because you are attended to and now feel basically good. And so we like mm-hmm. that attended to. We like that affirmation. It makes us feel good. And so really from probably a psychological perspective, um, we're, we're built up. We kind of get a big head um, and we, we get all that out of our system, I guess, you know, or, or that, that need to be um, kind of built up. And then when in our latter half of life, we're able to do that for other people because we don't need it. That's interesting because um, maybe the, the answer to that is when you are in that point where you need that, just forget second half of life and surrender to it. Yeah. <clears throat> Seek the affirmation. Seek the the security. Because um, it's interesting. Now, with me, the years I was in the ministry, there were a few, there, there were affirmations. You know, it always felt good when at the end of the sermon, as people left, they'd say, good job, pastor, good sermon, right. which was both encouraging and frustrating because you wanted to say to them, then go do it. Yeah, yeah, or or <clears throat> what know. part exactly were you talking about? Because exactly. I saw your eyes closed. <laughs> <laughs> but yet, when I look back now, I used to. I've often said, sixteen years of pastoral ministry, I never got a card or a letter saying thank you. <laughs> and yet, uh-huh. when I left the prison, I had an entire file folder full of letters, cards, and. Um, affirmations from both inmates and their families. Huh. So even though I was free from the need for the affirmation, the affirmation came. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a correlation yeah. there or not, but I, I think once you're free from needing it, then all of a sudden it's there. Yeah, I, really I, I've used that so many times too. I remember when, um, just over 10 years ago, when Benji, my brother, died, I was reading C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed, and and in there he says he's dealing with the grief of his wife or the loss of his wife, right. um, and he's wanting to see her again. And he he writes he get, he got to a point with God where he said, God, it's as if you're telling me I cannot see her until I no longer want to see her. And then I can see her. And he says, it's like me telling your kids that, okay, children, you cannot have any toffee right now. But when you're older and when you no longer want toffee, you can have all the toffee in the world. Um, And I've seen that. I love that image of surrender. um, And I get that cognitively. um, But it's really hard when you're wanting that affirmation or those letters and those cards and you're, you're you're not getting it. Um, and being told to let it go just seems yeah. to drive it deeper into your thoughts. So it's like, I'll tell you what it. I want to let go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The more you say, I don't want toffee, the more you want it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I want to touch on, you you said really early on today that you're, you were working through some change of ideas in well while you were pastoring and you were... Um, 
you look back on some of your old sermons and you're like, wow, I, I thought that or I said that. Um, how did you, as someone who's guiding a group of people spiritually, uh, work through some of your change of mind on, on different matters? Because you kind of you kind of have to do it yourself. Yes, it, it's it's not stuff you can like go up to the pulpit and be like, okay, um, I'm working through this stuff, <laughs> right? And, and I'm taking you with me. <clears throat> that you know that puts people out. How did how did you deal with that? Well, because that can be a tough thing. <clears throat> I was um, like I said, for five years of that, I was in college doing my masters, so you're able to work those through some of those with the people you're in class with. Sure. Um, I also was very fortunate. Once I got to Malone, which was 93, so that was <clears throat> the last half of my 16 years of ministry, I was fortunate enough to be part of a ministerial group, two different ministerial groups, and both of them, there were other pastors you know that i was able to hang with and we were able to freely exchange ideas oh that's good um in the first half yeah it was basically just me and my wife you know for who i could share those kinds of things with um who i it, it was kind of a, a lone struggle um but you know four years here two years here um two years before that as a youth pastor. Um, when I was a youth pastor, I tried to share him with my senior pastor, but it was an interesting situation. He was like a um, few years from retirement, and I was just out of Bible college. So we... Yeah. we You're in completely different phases of yeah, life. Yeah, <laughs> we're so he wasn't yeah. really interested in wrestling with, although he was good to hear me. Um, and he, it was interesting because he was at a point where he was looking back and saying, man... I think I missed the whole boat. Really? Yeah. And I I used to feel sorry for him, so I ended up being more of a listener to him mm. than I think he was to me. Uh, but um Wow. And I yeah, so you just gotta find like minded people. I think you and Josh are fortunate to have each other. Sure. Um to to walk with you through that. Your congregation will see it. They will send some of it. Yeah. I yeah. would have I've, people come up to me and say I've heard you know, I've heard comments here and there. Yeah, you both used good to, and bad. <laughs> yeah, you you used to think this, and I'm like, what? I still kind of do. Well, here's here's what I'm wrestling with right now, and it's yeah. sometimes well received and sometimes really not. And you know, you you learn, and then that's where you, you learn have you to... learn who you can talk to and who you can't. That's where you have to decide. Okay, which of these issues is worth sure. Um, sacrifice. Yeah, you know, and you guys are also in that unique position, especially if your church is part of a denomination. You are there is a certain structure within which you are functioning, mm -hmm. and you have to respect that structure, even if you disagree with it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's like I when I was prison chaplain, I preached in a lot of different churches. The, the guys would go on vacation and I, that was a lot of fun because again you're coming in you don't have any of the baggage of you know being employed by them or whatever 
And um, this one fellow I remember came to me, part of the United Church of Christ, the Congregational Church, and he asked me to do a 16, he asked me, he said, out of 16 weeks in the summer, I'm going on sabbatical, how many of those could you do? <laughs> or maybe it was 18 weeks. <laughs> and I went home and talked to my wife, and we talked about it and prayed about it, and I went back to him, and I said, I can do all but two. Wow. And he was so excited, and you know, it was a lot of fun. It was like pastoring again, so yeah. to speak. Now, going into that, I had to, you know, realize, okay, now I'm a Wesleyan pastor, and I used to yeah. see church. Yep. Which ironically probably was more freedom because they have a lot different their their structure's a lot looser than ours. Yeah. But the other side of that is, you know, okay, so you're invited to preach at this church and there what I'm saying is it wouldn't be right to walk into a Baptist church and preach on right. free will. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I had to you uh, you you gotta respect where you're at. Yeah. Where's your field? That's it. Yeah. David and I, David comes from the independent Christian church and I'm from the Wesleyan church. So, I mean, we've got, um, we got lines crossing all over the time. All yeah. Over the place, well, and we've, time. we've had a lot of interesting conversations cause, uh, Josh, the, you can cut this out if, uh, this, you don't want this to be known, but there, <laughs> I, I think, I think in terms of, uh, of, of pastoring, this is, this is universal, but you've, You've had wrestling with your denomination before, and uh, we don't have a denomination. And I come at it thinking of all the good that can come from a denomination because mm-hmm. I'm I'm seeing like the safety nets that are there, and especially um, you know with all the pastors now in the Me Too movement that are you know in denominational lists. Yeah situations yes. that are falling because there's been no uh accountability. No accountability right i i come at it seeing well shoot like there's a lot of good coming from denominations and then and then josh is seeing the freedom from my end right yeah. so there's this push pull that we have going on yeah well, I'm, I'm well, i remember always... one time telling i went to i crashed a board meeting they called a board meeting without me which was illegal according to the yeah. Western discipline but huh. And they wanted to, they were going to, you know, roast the pastor. And one of my board members who nice. likes me said to me, hey, there's going to be a meeting this night about you. You might want to show up. <laughs> so I crashed the meeting. And I remember looking at them and saying, you know, I looked at their little agenda and I said, you do realize that all these points right here are invalid because the sign on the front of the church says Wesleyan. <laughs> yeah. Those are Wesleyan values, not pastor tim's values so if you don't like it it's probably a good idea for you to either go somewhere else or take the name wesleyan off the church and i'll go somewhere else because i'm an ordained wesleyan pastor so you're right david but then on the other hand there are those issues that i read the discipline and go i really just can't embrace that anymore right and and so there's this there's this healthy push or unhealthy push pull yeah. of like is is a structure you know good and helpful or where does it fall short where does yeah. it constrict and and I'm always just personality wise I think maybe this is why you know I enjoy talking with Tim because we probably are similar in this way um, but just ask my mom I am quite rebellious <laughs> um, and. <laughs> And so if there's any structure, if you tell me I have to stay within a box, yes. like, tell me again. Come on. You know, <laughs> I don't have to. I'll um, tell you why. <laughs> I'll tell you why I can kick the side of the box out. Yeah. <laughs> and 
and so and we, we saw that David, you know, you and I went to college together and and we saw all our classmates saw that about me, you know, yeah. like I remember specifically it was the emergent movement, you know, like the emergent church, like, oh yeah, this is this big new thing um that I have, you know, since really embraced a lot of a, a lot of what um what it st- stands for. Um, but I remember pushing against that hard. I'm like, no, we can't do that. You know, like that's something new and, and you're kind of in, imposing something, you know, new on me. And yeah. and so I pushed hard against that at first, but then I'll come around. Yeah, um, you, you, you used to get fired up. The The most that I ever saw you get fired up was when our, our ministry professor said something along the lines of most pastors have like a, 10 year lifespan maybe 15 at a at a church like at at their length and maybe maybe that's good because churches need a healthy change and you just i mean went ballistic you were like no my dad's been here for like, it, was, it was something like 25 years at this point and he he has got a rapport with everyone because he's been here so long and i mean you freaking flipped man <laughs> it's a my dad your dad kind of it was, argument it was yeah it was more my dad versus the world like you were you were you were holding him up and and just i mean you wouldn't You're... let it go it was it I'm, I'm not saying it as a knock it was a fun class yeah um because no one had any experience to be able to push back on that at all well but, your dad's a unique individual i'm yeah. not sure <laughs> he is i'm not sure that he could ever be held up as a, as Josh, a standard or Josh a model because <laughs> yeah, Josh did it. <laughs> There's only one of him. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to this, so uh, let's talk about religion for a little bit. Um, Roar talks about religion as being more of a first half of life kind of a thing, and he says religion. Um, religion tends to make truth claims that are absolutely true um, because we first half of life stuff wants to be bounded. We want that black and white. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, Tim and I, you, you and I were just talking about um, just before this episode um, about the spiritual kind of transformation and journey. And many people on our spiritual life and spiritual journey, we end up leaving leaving the church altogether because the system, the structure of church really is kind of a first half of life thing. Um, it's about safety and security and finding purpose and value and, and validating, you know, me. And, and it's often it's, it's our quest for, for God, you know, us trying to, to find God in that. Um, and, and of course we've seen the abuse of, of church, of the church structure. Um, and you know, so for us as leaders in the church, you know, can we, can we work to, to reform that and bring second half of life kind of thinking into that? Um, but we, we find often this, this tension, again, going back to the truth claims, when you're in first half of life, as most people tend to be in first half of life, um, kind of mentality or issues or values, you want to be affirmed. You want black and white issues. We're not comfortable with gray, with blurry, um, with truths that might not be absolutely true all the time. Um, those those tend to be second half of life. You know, I'm okay with the mystery of things, you know, and the, the unknowns. Um, 
but we want answers and we want to know what's right and what's wrong. And yep. like you were talking about, you know, with um, with your Muslim friends and brothers, and um, and of course the the Catholics, and and there's a whole spectrum there. Um, Roar Roar talks about the the more that he's known God, the longer that he's known God, the bigger God has become. Um, and and I think that's a second half of life mentality that we're okay with with some of the tensions, we're okay with not having to be right um, and embracing uh, larger larger concerns rather than having to make everything black and white and absolutely true. Yeah. I think there's two things, as I reflect back, and you can tell I've done a lot of that, <clears throat> two things that if I could have been stripped of or had a different thinking about, I would have, I wish would have happened. And number one is systematic theology. I think it's totally messed us up. Mm. We're, you know, we want to neatly categorize. Yeah, yeah. And one of the biggest freedoms was when I took a, and it was clear into my master's degree, finally took a class on biblical theology. And the professor, we, there was nothing in there about systematic. Mm. It was about Bible. Yeah. And the second one, and again, this is going to be one of those pushback areas is, I wish I would have been taught, and I, I asked your dad if he ever regretted going to UWC. Of course, he's in a whole different frame of mind right. than I am. One of my regrets about going to a conservative Bible college was, you know, that being taught that the Bible is the infallible and errant word of God. Yeah. I really wish somebody would have told me it was a book of wisdom about man wrestling with his concepts of God. Because when we immediately jump to trying to, you know, interpret the Bible as a book of rules about how to live. Yeah. Um, so once you you push those out of the way, suddenly I would agree with Roar. My God got bigger. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, <clears throat> there was room for these other other veins and traditions of spirituality. Yeah. Um, they suddenly different concepts and you're willing to sit and discuss you know it's interesting if somebody would really when you sit down with a muslim and begin to look at their belief system i'll never forget the day i looked at one one muslim fella and said um so what do you believe about jesus i know he's one of your prophets but what do you believe about jesus and i said do you believe he's the messiah and he said you can't be a Muslim and not believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Hmm. Which immediately made me run to the book of John in my mind where he says, we write these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, wow, what am I going to do with that one now? <laughs> yeah. And But anyway, black and white. You know, you're right. We like right. black and white. I'm really comfortable with gray now. Yeah. I'm really comfortable with saying, I don't know. There almost seems to be like a, not societal as in all society, but it, within the church world, there's kind of a societal shift in that way. You have like uh, some of Peter N's recent books and um, uh, even uh, Rob Bell's most recent book, um, some things that Brian Zond and Greg Boyd are saying, like they're, yeah. they're, they're stretching pulling away from this idea of, uh, like, this proves this, proves this, proves this, um, a more systematic type of thinking and more of a um, 
seeing the Bible literally for what it is and how God's speaking through those who write it. So it's it's interesting that it is that you say that because I think I think in the church world we're seeing that shift as well. Absolutely. And I think those who don't shift that way are going to find themselves at a crisis point um, because society in general is not willing to embrace that rigidity anymore. We have yeah. to um, be more fluid. And it's interesting you named all those people because they're all, I follow all of them yeah. on Twitter and they're all my heroes right yeah. now. So it's like, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> There's a tension, I think, with this first half of life, second half of life thinking, and I don't, I don't think it can be resolved. And um, it's interesting living in a society, living within systems that operate both, you know, and like, and how, how do we, how do we live in that tension? How do we embrace that tension? How do, you know, may, how do we maybe live in in both half of halves of life? you know, at, at the same time, maybe, um, and maybe in those times of, of transition. Um, I, I really like Tim, I like that, the imagery of journey, um, that you use, you know, what is this a journey that I want to go on? Um, really evaluating, um, is this where I want to head? And, you know, David, I've talked about, um, rather while I'm pushing against this idea of success, I, I I still want to, use like target or goal oriented language. Like I'm still, I'm still open and I still want to kind of encourage us to know where we're going. Like, um, we still have to be heading in a direction. I'm not, I'm not at all an advocate of saying like, well, yeah, let's just aimlessly kind of smoke pot all day and just like whatever happens, happens, you know? And there is a pot church now. (laughs) Have you heard about this? Yeah. Um, It's definitely, I'm not, I'm not bashing it, but you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that's what we should all do. Um, you know, I, I do think that, uh, that there is a direction, there is goals, that there's a target that can be identified. Um, and we do have to ask ourselves that question of like, is this a journey that, yeah. that I want to go on? Is, is this where I How much time do head? we have? We can keep going. Okay. Cause I, I just want to throw from another perspective not that first half, second half of life isn't sufficient, but a guy by the name of Kohlberg, who was a professor at Harvard, he just died here a few years ago, um, created what he called the Kohlberg Theory of Moral Development. And he talked about how the first, there's six stages in three different sections. And he talked about the first and second being the punishment, first one being punishment, second one being reward. And then he goes into the third one, the third and fourth level, which are what we would think of as teenage years. And he talks about living by the rules. And then the later um, final stage, which he calls the adult stage, and it's the fifth and sixth level, is principled living, um, living beyond the rules where we internalize the rules and they become part of who we are. But the final level is principled living where we live, we no longer care about peers. We don't no longer care about the reactions. It's simply we do what is right because that's the thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I often think about those levels of development because, you know, in teenage years, it's peer pressure. 
we respond to peer pressure. Yeah. And then the final, once we get beyond peer pressure, then it's all about the rules. And I think a lot of people in the church today are still stuck in the rules level. We've never gotten to the point where we've internalized the rules so that we live our life be, not because of the rules, but because we understand the spirit of the rules. You yeah. Know? Uh. And very few, I think, get to the point where we just do what is right because it's the right thing to do. And I see that as a first half, second half life thing, yeah. too. You know, we it takes us, you know, well into our adult years before we finally are free of all the pressure around us to the point where we can just say, you know what? No matter what happens, I'm going to do this because it's just the right thing to do. Mm. And, you know, and that's where Jesus lived. You yeah. know, Jesus... How many times did they try to kill him before they finally did? Because he just didn't really care what you thought. Um, he intentionally is, broke rules if it yeah, was the right thing to right. do. And when you were talking, I thought about the Pharisees, scribes versus Jesus uh, oh, yeah. interactions so often. They were all about the rules. Yeah, yeah. And Jesus said, you know, you, you tithe on the spices in your cabinet but you treat your neighbor like a dirt bag. Yeah. You know, come on. Yeah. And and you know, that's to me the and this might take us again in a whole different direction. But where I've come in my life is any crisis I encounter, any anything that I have to weigh through, I go to you know that command of Jesus. Love your love God and love your neighbor. Yeah. And if it's if it's not going to result in showing my love for my neighbor, oh well. I probably don't don't need to participate in it. Right. And you know, putting the love of my of humanity above all else. And my job isn't to decide who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong. My job is just to love people. Mm. That's mm. yeah. I um again. I I wonder. Can we get to that point without without that first bit? Well, Kohlberg said you can't get to any of the other stages until you've gone through the one before it. Yeah. Wow. Um. So can we get to the second half of life without struggling through the first no. half? No. So Roar talks it talks about that. Too not in, not in his book falling upward, but um, he talks to, he, he talks about different boxes, and I remember this image he's using three. He says we're born into yep. um, into this box of order, and then we we get to a point after the structure, you know, after the probably the rules, after learning like here's the the, the rules of of life, um, and then we arrive. I think often we see this in, in college. Um, you know, I, I definitely in seminary, I begin to rest, begin to wrestle with some of these things, realizing that things aren't as black and white, realizing that the rules don't fit quite as well, quite as nicely. Um, and Roar says, this is the, that box, that stage of disorder. Yep. And, and then as we press into God um, and as we kind of continue to wrestle with attention, then there's a third box of reorder. 
um, where we and can, he says you have to go through the disorder to get to the real. Yeah, yeah. and so this is I remember one of Chuck Stern's class that we took in college. You know where he told us, and this is dangerous, by the way, to tell freshmen, um, <laughs> freshman students. Chuck think, Stern, <laughs> for for uh, context, was. Um, one of those impossible to control type of professors, which was great and awesome, but yeah. but man, he uh... but quite vulnerable for like realizing and looking back at a lot of the classmates. Like college freshmen are very vulnerable population, and so he told this group of undergrad students. He says, "In this class, I am going to destroy your faith." <laughs> <laughs> And then he said, and then we'll work together to re- rebuild it. Um, and oh, like All that, in one semester. <laughs> yeah. And boy, I'll tell you, like, some of those students, I, I, and again, the undergrad is such a vulnerable population where some of them were destroyed never to, to reorder right. he again. Right. He needs to wait until week two because in week one, you can drop a class. And if <laughs> right. he destroys them right then... They ain't never coming back. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but so back to these three boxes, Roar talks about that when you skip that first step of order, when you're born, if you're born into complete disorder, there's no reorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom was concerned for me for quite some time as a baby because I was born quite large. Um, it was a very chubby baby. And then I just gained weight like crazy that first year, um, of my life. And I was so fat as a baby that I could not crawl because I could not actually reach the floor with my, my knees and with my, uh, you're forever scarred. Yeah. And so I learned how to walk before I learned how to crawl. And my mom was just kind of forever mortified by that because she heard there's probably books written, you know, and it's like, oh, your child, if, if your child learns to walk before they crawl, like he's going to have problems. There can be developmental. And yeah, therein lies the answer, Dave. We now, we've just (laughs) figured Josh out. Yeah. He never crawled. It's true. And before (laughs) you, before you walk. Yeah. Um, So I, if there's something there. So when we're born into disorder, we, we have to kind of figure out how to, I don't know, maybe how to go backwards or you can't throw out order. We can't throw the rules out. You, we have to right. learn how to play by the rules before we can break sure. them. Um, and I think there's something, there's something about brokenness um, oh, that God, uh, God seems to kind of wire us for that um, in order to, to reach that second half, we have to be we have to be broken. In order to really surrender, we do have to kind of go through this uh, this this stage of yeah of, of brokenness of, of despair of not knowing of kind of chaos sometimes. Um, and really, in order to be really chaotic, to be unordered, something has to be ordered at first. Well, wow. it's been it's been good. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good place to uh, leave this conversation. The, that was, I mean, we went all over the place. That we was, did. That, that was, was good stuff. Um, uh, but we want to continue the conversation. So if you, uh, you can find us at Unsuccess Pod on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. And uh, 
you can find any of us there as well. Uh, David Louise. Uh, yeah, I was thinking we should get a presence on Pinterest. Okay. My daughter just got a Pinterest account and she was all excited. And so, you know, that's so I think that's an untapped market, you know, the whole yeah. Pinterest market. Uh, my um, wife's a knitter, and it is a very tapped market. <laughs> uh, there, there are plenty of people on Pinterest. There's um, a niche. It's but, not as tapped, though. I don't think for these kinds of discussions. Sure. But <laughs> when I had my blog and I, I posted on Pinterest, I got a lot of responses. Is that right? That. Yeah. Huh. You should tap it. Okay, that's that's interesting. Uh, well, by the time you hear this, we will probably <laughs> we'll be, be on, on Pinterest. We'll probably Pinterest be on Pinterest. Well. we'll see how that goes. Our unsuccess um. Pinterest account. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, yeah, I can't. I can't figure it out. Um, so, yeah, uh, find us. Continue the conversation. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. But for the Unsuccess Podcast, I'm David Libby. And I'm Josh Hawk. And we want to thank you, Tim, for being on. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right, we will see you next week.